0: This is episode 43 of Rape Good Scholar, The Shakespeare Apocrypha. Yeah, because it never appears that Shakespeare denied authorship or association with any of these plays.
1: With the degree that he plagiarized, I don't think he would ever deny authorship of anything.
0: Probably not, but I don't know. I guess it depends how bad the play is. <laughs> This is Scott Newstock, director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowment at Rhodes College and author of How to Think Like Shakespeare, and you're listening to Ripe Good Scholar.
2: Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have traveled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah.
0: Hello and welcome to ripe good scholar ever since shakespeare started gaining popularity people have been attributing plays to him that he may not have had anything to do with some of these have been easier to disprove than others but there are a few lingering plays that we cannot say whether shakespeare had a hand in or not and so we have the shakespeare apocrypha things get much more complicated as we dive deeper into what it meant to be a playwright in Shakespeare's time. There was a lot of collaboration, stealing, and editing. This can make it nearly impossible to determine who was the author. But that won't stop us from speculating. For this episode, I read excerpts from Shakespeare and Others, collaborative plays, edited by Jonathan Bate and Eric Rasmussen, among other books and articles. If you want to check out all my sources, head on over to com slash EP43. Now, let's head to London. Let's talk about the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha.
1: Now, those are the uh, 12 disciples of Shakespeare, right?
0: Those would be the Apostles. Basically, since Shakespeare started gaining notoriety as a playwright, his name has been attributed to a number of plays that may or may not have been written by him.
1: The Apocrypha.
0: The first folio that we talked about in a previous episode Contains 36 plays because now most people would say there are 38 or 39 plays. For sure, what was missing was Pericles and the Two Noble Kinsmen.
1: Those were missing from the first folio.
0: Those were missing from the first folio.
1: Those two plays that everyone's read and knows everything about, including me.
0: Obviously, the most popular Shakespeare plays. And then there's Edward III, which is generally accepted as one of Shakespeare's later collaborations, but there is still some debate. For the longest time, Time, the first folio was the, considered to be what was quintessentially Shakespeare. This was put together by...
1: His friends and colleagues.
0: Condell and Hemmings. There are a couple of reasons that we talked about in our first folio episode as to why some plays might not have been in there. For example, we have lost plays of Shakespeare's, like Love Labor's One and Cardinio, Cardinio being another collaboration. So some people think that perhaps they were trying to eliminate most of the collaborations from the first folio. But as we now know, there are collaborations in the first folio. Like Henry VI, Titus Andronicus, Henry VIII for sure. I think also Timon of Athens. And and it also might just come down to they couldn't secure the rights. If someone else had the printing rights to that play and they couldn't secure them, they couldn't print it. Like what we saw with Troilus and Cressida, which was a last minute addition to the first folio to the point where it's not on the table of contents. (laughs) Now, when we get around to the third folio, that contains 43 plays, which we will get into what the seven additional plays were in more detail later. Tucker Brooke, in his 1908 book, one of the first books about the Shakespeare apocrypha, he brings the total to 42. The most recent book that was supposed to be a companion to the Royal Shakespeare Company's complete works, um, it's called William Shakespeare and others, um, edited by Jonathan Bate. That adds 10 additional plays. 10? Yeah, there are 10 plays covered that are a part of the Apocrypha. Now, they get into in their introduction that not all of them are definitely written by Shakespeare.
1: I mean, aren't all of the Apocrypha not definitely written by
0: Shakespeare? Well, yeah, but they acknowledge that this is not necessarily them alleging that these plays were in fact written by Shakespeare. They more approach it from he maybe had a hand in it, which we're going to get into more detail later some of them were were performed by his acting troupe, in which he was a shareholder so it's conceivable that he would tweak something okay oxford tends to just accept everything as a shakespeare play i think they're up to like 49 and that's in part because they have two versions of king lear
1: let's all just constantly throw shade at Oxford's Shakespeare department.
0: As I was reading up on Pericles a little bit, Cambridge seems to be a little more nitpicky than Oxford. Obviously, it's really tough to nail down exactly what is the Shakespeare Apocrypha. Because even in William Shakespeare and others, with their 10 plays, they don't include one of the plays that was in Tucker Brooks' book about the Apocrypha. So you just have this wide range of maybe, maybe not by Shakespeare.
1: Yeah, like a dozen
0: plays. But I think Tucker Brooke wrote a really well-worded summary of what the Apocrypha is. The Shakespeare Apocrypha have been accumulating during three centuries. Each generation has attributed to the poet in good faith or in fraud, tentatively or with conviction. The authorship of the plays, with which his name had not previously been connected. At the same time, certain plays, once ascribed to Shakespeare, have gradually disappeared from the list. As the actual authors have been discovered, or the absurdity of the ascription has made itself generally felt.
1: It's a confusing mishmash of of scholars arguing over the ages, and also frauds.
0: Of course, the Shakespeare Paragraph, while we'll be focusing on plays, is not strictly limited to plays
1: i'm guessing poems and songs
0: not songs epitaphs
1: wait no epitaph sounds great oh my god i want shakespeare to write
0: my epitaph now this is a quote from the wikipedia page it pains me a little bit to quote wikipedia but also i think they put this very well so kudos to you anonymous author several poems published anonymously have been attributed by scholars to Shakespeare. Others were attributed to him in in 17th century manuscripts. None have received universal acceptance. The authorship of some poems published under Shakespeare's name in his lifetime have also been questioned. The main poems that are still considered kind of part of the apocrypha, we just don't know, are The Passionate Pilgrim, A Lover's Complaint to the Queen, A Funeral Elegy, and Shall I Die? They've been included in various volumes. I think The Passionate Pilgrim was in a volume that it's questionable whether or not Shakespeare actually wrote anything for that or whether his name was just thrown in there. Some of them have been included with printings of the sonnets.
1: What I think is very interesting is that Shall I Die is only one line Just says yes.
0: as we touched on before my favorite apocryphal works have to be the epitaphs
1: oh, and yes. we're gonna take
0: a minute to talk about the epitaphs because they're never gonna get their own episode because there's not up there
1: lay them on me I love it
0: so first um, there was an epitaph to Elias James, he was a brewer who lived in the Blackfriars area, which is towards the end of Shakespeare's London career. That's where he was living. His company had purchased the Blackfriars theater and he lived in the apartment above it. So it's
1: possible. I think an actor would probably know a brewer.
0: Now, it was attributed to Shakespeare in John Stowe's 1633 survey of London, but unfortunately the epitaph has been lost.
1: No, yeah, but do we know what the epitaph said? So I don't
0: think so, oh. or at least I I didn't find it. There's only so much research I was willing to do into this tangent.
1: Funny epitaphs are like
0: I don't think it was a funny epitaph. I <laughs> think it was an act it was like on his grave.
1: Yeah, funny epitaphs are like the highest form of art.
0: One of them was funny though. He wrote epitaphs for two different people. Okay, for John Combe, who was a Stratford businessman, he wrote two. One legend goes was a satirical epitaph he wrote on the spot at a party. Various versions of it have existed throughout different stories in history, but I don't have it.
1: So he did a satirical one just to make fun of this businessman?
0: Yeah, he apparently lended money at a high interest rate.
1: Oh, so he was Mr. Scrooge. He was making fun of Mr. Scrooge.
0: And then he allegedly also wrote the one where when the dude actually died. <laughs> that was like a serious one. And like I said, we're going to be focusing on plays because that's the big one. Maybe someday we'll touch more on the poems. Now, if we were to travel back in time to the early 1600s and were perusing the book stalls, yeah. we would see quite a few plays attributed to Shakespeare that we would not recognize at all. Yeah, That would have been more commonly accepted as just a part of the Shakespeare canon because the readers had no reason to doubt the attributions.
1: Like at this point, there had been no uh, scholarly pairing away of...
0: No, I mean, he was still alive at this point. This was the Wild West of publishing.
1: Oh, so people would just be like, hey, this was a Shakespeare play. And he'd be like, ooh, I didn't write
0: this. Maybe. That's kind of the question. Now, there have been some that we know weren't his yeah the one that comes to mind this was actually attributed to him later because it was written after he died so like obviously he didn't write that because he was dead
1: it's like someone changing their pen name to stefan king
0: yes but the the challenge since that time for us has been to determine which plays were in fact written by shakespeare and which ones were fraudulently attributed to him usually to boost sales especially because we're talking about like 1608 this is towards the end of his career he and his acting company they are now the king's men they are are well known.
1: Yeah, they're well known, they're popular, so you might as well slap their name on it and rip some people off.
0: But I think we also have to keep in mind that there were a number of his plays published that did not have any attributions on it, like Titus Andronicus. In some of his early plays, there was no author listed. Huh. So it's not as simple as was his name on it or not. Because sometimes his name wasn't on it when it was his play, and sometimes his name was on it when it was not his play.
1: Thank you, 17th century, for being confusing as heck.
0: Well, as Baldwin Maxwell said in his studies in the Shakespeare Apocrypha, as there were no copyright laws which assured that a playwright would be credited with work written by him or protected against the ascription to him of work by another. He just is saying that there was no protection. There was no guarantee that what it said was what was true. And now he was writing in 1956 and Jonathan Bate, which this was a much more recent look into the apocrypha. He said, readers would not have had the slightest reason to question the attributions. After all, the identity identification of a play's original acting company was as important a mark of its authenticity as the playwright's name. This is where, as we'll talk about specific examples, it would say by W.S. or W. Shakespeare, but it will also say as acted by the king's servants, you know, or the Lord Chamberlain's servants. One of them even says acted at the Globe. While Shakespeare was a shareholder in this acting troupe and probably wrote a lot of their plays, he didn't write all of them. But as a shareholder, he would have signed off on them. And so as we get a clearer look as to what Elizabethan theater looked like, the question starts coming up of how much was Shakespeare involved in these plays? Maybe he didn't do anything. Maybe he kind of tweaked a couple of things. It's going to be impossible for us to ever really know that. Because again, it was about the troupe. It was about the acting company, not the writer.
1: So that and that kind of speaks to how much more collaborative theater would have been at the time, how much more say actors had over their lines, over their parts. And also again, the recurring theme of this podcast shakespeare was not a lone genius he was a collaborator even the public at the time saw the mark of his acting company as legitimizing these play drafts
0: exactly from what i could see there are five main plays that kind of make up this point of contention of whether or not shakespeare wrote them Gotcha. All of the books I read said that we know there were plays falsely attributed to Shakespeare, but not what those were. But these five... Three of them said they were authored by W.S. One said W. Shakespeare and one fully said William Shakespeare. Gotcha. So we're going to kind of get into a little bit about these five plays, not necessarily what they're about, but the attributions on them to then discuss more broadly why there is this question and why some people doubt that Shakespeare wrote them. In one case, it's clear cut. The first we're going to talk about is the true chronicle history of Thomas Lord Cromwell, who Thomas Cromwell was executed by Henry VIII after he found Anne of Clean. On the title page of the true chronicle history of Thomas Lord Cromwell, it says, As it hath been sundry times publicly acted by the Right Honorable the Lord Chamberlain's servants by W.S.
1: That sounds, that sounds really official and yeah.
0: It does, but it was pretty easy to write that.
1: Wait, you can just write things and... Oh my God.
0: So that is one that, again, was attributed to the Lord Chamberlain's men. There weren't really any other W.S.'s it could have been referring to. You know, because there's this kind of debate of, was W.S. someone else? Or were they just straight up saying it was Shakespeare? And really the consensus seems to be that they were either outright lying or it was Shakespeare. Yeah, Because there wasn't really anyone else it could be. The next play, which... As far as I can tell, didn't have any attribution to who acted it. It just was attributed to W.S.
1: So less official.
0: Yes, but the plays I'm naming here were all included in the third folio. Okay. Which I think is also part of why they are... The hot button topics. One was called the Puritan or the Widow of Watling Street. Oh,
1: again, such a
0: great name. It is a great name.
1: It's so good.
0: But that just, again, was just attributed to W.S. as far as I was able to tell, there was no, like, it was acted by so-and-so. Now, one of the most interesting ones of the W.S. ones was the Lamentable Tragedy of Lockrin, because that says newly set forth overseen and corrected by ws huh so this doesn't say written by
1: edited by
0: yeah oh, like he he tweaked it yeah which again is extremely possible
1: basically he was the editor at least according to this attribution he was the editor of this piece making it look presentable
0: yeah and again if it was acted by his troop what was its name again uh the lamentable tragedy of lockron At some point, I want to do an episode on each play in the Apocrypha.
1: What's interesting to me is that, you know, this is the third folio. They're probably scraping the barrel to get some new stuff in there for this printing. And it's interesting to me that maybe as Shakespeare's career came to an end, maybe he was just kind of editing plays for younger playwrights and putting his stamp of approval on
0: them. Yeah, definitely. And I think even even throughout his career, once he became a shareholder in the acting company, he, with the other shareholders, would have had the stamp of approval on any play they did and while Shakespeare wrote a lot of plays there's no way he wrote everything they ever acted. Fair. I will mention there was it was called a Yorkshire tragedy.
1: Is it about terriers?
0: And there's a couple interesting things about this. One it, it was written by W. Shakespeare it said. It also said acted by his majesty's players at the globe. This would have been in the period of the King's Men, and it notes that it was at the globe. This isn't being vague, like some of the other ones are. This is straight up, this is Shakespeare, and this is the King's Men at the Globe.
1: What's also interesting is that we're seeing, like, we call them the King's Men as, like, that's what their name was, and or the Lord Chamberlain's Men, and... The phrasing here is really implying that, no, that was not what their name was.
0: Yes and no. For example, in Henslow's Diary he would say the Lord Chamberlain's Men. With these titles, you know, it's his, the King's Majesty's Servants, the Majesty's Servants at the Globe. It's a little more official sounding. In some cases they were called the King's Men. I'm
1: sure they were. It just seems like instead of that being their name, that was just a description of what they were.
0: But what I will also point out as just something worth noting for a Yorkshire tragedy is Thomas Pavier, who notably printed a whole bunch of different quartos that we saw being put into the first folio and beyond. He is the one who printed a Yorkshire tragedy. Interesting. So it's just interesting to me that someone who previously had rights to some of Shakespeare's plays also had rights to this one that is allegedly a Shakespeare play.
1: But didn't get in the first
0: folio. It did not. Finally, we have the London Prodigal. Um, this says, as it was played played by the king's majesty's servants by William Shakespeare. Again, this one is seen in the third folio. There's one more play we'll touch on when we get to the third folio that is almost most definitely not Shakespeare. These are the biggest question marks that keep coming up again with the Apocrypha. All three books I looked at, plus all of the articles I read, all focused around some or all of these plays. And I think it's because these were attributed to him during his lifetime and they appear in the third folio. As uh, Maxwell said again he was writing in 1956 as shakespeare's authorship of the three ws plays is today wholly denied as it is now recognized that his name was upon more than one occasion appended to work in which he could have had no share it has been generally assumed that the title page ascriptions like the bolder false ascriptions to w shakespeare should be interpreted as deliberate designs on the part of the printers to capitalize upon Shakespeare's recognized superiority. And at first, I was kind of like, this is the 50s being like, he was clearly superior. But at this point in his career, they were being patronized by the king. So they clearly were.
1: Yeah, when you're the king's men, you are superior.
0: The king is only going to pay for the best of the best. What I found interesting, though, is Bate, as kind of a counterpoint to that, talks about how, like, while we're never going to know the truth about kind of the W.S. quartos that even if they are false attributions, it's still worth looking at them because they were attributed to his acting company. And again, that means he signed off on them and possibly edited them. So those plays by being associated with him on some level, and by being associated with his acting troupe, are worth looking at to get an idea of how they were working and how his acting company produced, and what kind of plays they were working on, to get a better idea of the environment Shakespeare was working in. So yeah,
1: they're at least of historical significance to anyone interested in Shakespeare's life and work. Yeah, because
0: it never appears that Shakespeare denied authorship or association with any of these plays.
1: With the degree that he plagiarized, I don't think he would ever deny authorship of anything.
0: Probably not, but... I don't know. I guess it depends how bad the play is. (laughs) (laughs) So this brings us to the third folio. The third folio added seven additional plays to the original 36. The five that we just discussed. Yes. Pericles.
1: Which is accepted as a play
0: and a play called Sir John Oldcastle, which is notable because Falstaff was apparently originally John Oldcastle, but then the Oldcastle family got all mad about it because it wasn't a great representation of their what? ancestors.
1: Calling someone's ancestor a drunken thief?
0: However, this play appears in Philip Henslow's diary in 1599 and is attributed to four different playwrights. What? Like four other playwrights. He was like, these four dramatists are the ones who did this. And Shakespeare was not among them.
1: It took four dramas? to do one Falstaff
0: play again here though we're getting a picture of the collaborative nature of theater at the time there are very few playwrights of the time that worked alone
1: yeah that's fair
0: but as you pointed out when I mentioned it Pericles is the only one that is widely accepted as Shakespeare's
1: you know what I'm throwing down the gauntlet now I don't accept it.
0: Now, there is a debate as to whether Pericles is a collaboration um, with George Wilkins or not. Oxford and another group says it was. Cambridge says it wasn't. We're never going to know. Yep. However... I could not find any reason why Pericles is accepted as Shakespeare and none of the rest were, because that's, it's been that way since before, like, computers. So it's not that. It's weird. Why that one? Well,
1: you know, now I'm deciding it's not.
0: But I think that looking at Pericles as an example also continues to raise that question of why were some plays not included in the first folio, which we got into at the start of this, but I think it's worth remembering that there are two lost Shakespeare plays, Love Labors One and Cardinio. Now, interestingly, um, which I want to get into Cardinio at some point, because there is someone who decades later wrote a play under a different title, but said he was working on three different manuscripts he had of Cardinio.
1: So he was a liar.
0: Possibly, because as far as I know, like I don't see how it's a lost play. And also there are three manuscripts that exist.
1: The manuscripts just describe, they're just summaries of the plot. And he's just writing another play wholesale.
0: The reason that I want to reiterate with the first folio is that there were plays missing. There are some plays that have been fully lost. And then they're like Pericles and Two Noble Kinsmen are plays that came up later. I think it's worth remembering this with the first folio that there are plays that weren't in it. And that's, I think, part of the reason that we have the Shakespeare Apocrypha now.
1: There's, there's a question because we know with t- what certainty we can have that not everything was included in the first folio so there just is this question of whether or not these other attributions are legit
0: as we've been talking about in recent years our image of Shakespeare as a writer and Elizabethan theater as a whole has changed from This, you know, each writer writing their own stuff to it being a much more collaborative space where, you know, not only did they work on plays together, but they took from each other and took ideas from each other. But I think that this changing image has brought about a renewed interest in the Shakespeare apocrypha, which is why we're seeing a new book on it, William Shakespeare and others has contributions from some of the best Shakespeare scholars in the field right now. Prior to that, we had Maxwell's book in 1956, and prior to that, we had Tucker Brooks' book in 1908. I think that this shift is bringing about this new interest in the Shakespeare apocryphal on top of the fact that now computer analysis is possible with caveats, which we'll get into in just a moment.
1: It really is like the, the less rigidly we try and impose our ideals on the past, the more everything just kind of makes a bit more sense.
0: I think Jonathan Bate put it really well in the book, William Shakespeare and others. He said, there's been a renewed willingness to approach Shakespeare as a working man of the theater and a collaborative author not a solitary genius. So I wanted to read that quote cuz I think it just sums it up perfectly that as this image of Shakespeare changes as we kind of take down this image of the bard, that we can get a more clear picture of how Elizabethan theater worked, which then calls into question the assumptions of the past. I think we also have to keep in mind that as we learned in our worth of wit episode shakespeare's early reputation was as a pilferer of other people's plays yeah like that's what he was known for so it is not outside of the realm of possibility that while he didn't write these plays he edited them
1: yeah so like he st- he started his career pilfering plays and he ended his career putting his names on plays other people wrote <laughs> it's growth <laughs> Of a kind.
0: No, I I think looking at Ben Johnson's folio is a good example of the mindset behind the folio, which is why some another reason why some of these plays might not have been in the first folio. Because Johnson, we have to remember, was alive to create his folio. He got a say in what plays were included and what were not. And Johnson did not include all his plays, most notably his collaboration. Uh, that got him arrested
1: okay uh, that makes sense but also coward
0: i know i think that play is lost actually
1: oh thanks ben i want to know why it got him arrested do we know that
0: i think we do i don't know off the top of my head but i think we do i, I you know, it insulted the queen probably mm. Mm. while johnson was alive to be selective and to say you know i don't want my most notable collaborations to be included in my folio shakespeare was not around it was up to the people creating the folio to determine what would be in there.
1: Yeah, it seems like he had the least say in what bits of his work got published
0: we can get an idea into what motivated Condell and Hemmings because in their introduction they say Shakespeare was a lone author. Everything he wrote just flew out of his mind and onto the paper and he never even edited a word which is just not true.
1: Yeah that's baloney.
0: That is the starting image we have though and so perhaps some of these plays weren't included because they were either collaborations or he barely touched them, or he just kind of smoothed out the rough edges for the acting company. We just don't know. Again, we keep coming back to the truth is we're never going to know.
1: But we are going to argue about it forever.
0: Moving through time of of the Shakespeare Apocrypha study, prior to computer analysis and digital databases, it was just up to people. To decide what was Shakespearean and what wasn't. Which, as we've seen, can fluctuate wildly.
1: No, no. I'm pretty sure that one scholar is totally correct in every way.
0: And like we talked about in our George Peel and Titus episode it wasn't until the Restoration that people started being like, there's no way Shakespeare wrote this garbage. (laughs) Even though now we look at it and we're like, it's really not that
1: bad. Yeah, it's fine.
0: What was considered Shakespearean evolved with the tastes of the time. No one can say what is Shakespeare. And I think even now, again, as we talked about last week with the forensic textual analysis or um, as a lot of the articles here called it stylometry, having computers look at it, it hasn't pitfalls but it can also maybe give us a little bit of a clearer picture so sylvia morris on an article on the shakespeare blog said by comparing vocabulary spelling and grammatical constructions It was said that each writer's work could be identified, but stylometry wasn't accepted, perhaps because unreliable results came out of the earliest computer analysis. Which I think it is worth noting, like, it's getting better. Yeah. Like any sort of scientific testing methodology, it's going to get better. And Jonathan Bates seems to have much more faith in the process than early results would have indicated. And I think it's part of it's just the sheer volume of tests now, I remember when I was when I was researching for Titus, there were like 8 tests that said peel had a hand in this hmm. but i think that you know when you're looking at anything scientific method wise if it can continually be repeated that lends some credence to the results that's fair that being said i think it's going to be nearly impossible without some sort of proof that it works which as you mentioned last week has not happened yet there was no meta analysis that it works. Yeah. We're again, we're not going to know, especially because of the sheer amount of collaboration and stealing that happened. Marlowe's popular. I want my play to sound like Marlowe. I'm going to emulate Marlowe.
1: Yeah, I hear uh, Shed really had a big hand in Macbeth.
0: I think while it's interesting to look into the Shakespeare apocrypha and question whether or not something is Shakespeare or not, and look at why those decisions were made and should those decisions be reevaluated with new testing methodology, new understanding of how the theater worked, and maybe a more objective view of what Shakespeare could have written... I think we also have to always accept that we're never gonna know. We're never going to know if Shakespeare wrote a Yorkshire tragedy. We're just not. And we need to accept that as we examine these issues. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com slash EP43 for even more information on the Shakespeare Apocrypha. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholars. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at RipeGoodScholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.
2: Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe still and contemplative in living art.